Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we wonder just what's going on out there in the darkness in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 41, which begins with the compound dwellers watching Max walk into the night, and it ends with Max ready to stab someone after falling into a gully. Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. We start this week with arguably the darkest and scariest minutes of this movie. Perhaps. Darkest in the most literal sense. Yes. Because as we start this minute, all of the compound dwellers are gathered at the edge of the compound. They've just let Max through the barbed wire fence, and he's picking his way across kind of a makeshift bridge of wreckage, and he disappears into the darkness, just gone. I love this visual. There's also some, I'm not sure if it's sand stirred up in the wind or if it's smoke from the nearby Marauder's campfires, but he also walks through this wall of sand or smoke and then into the wall of blackness. It's lovely. As we were listening to the commentary that George Miller and Dean Semler do on the Blu-ray, they were talking about how for these nighttime scenes, they had a setup where they put their crane up and they put a bunch of polystyrene up there and they would use that as a light reflector to simulate the moon or stars. And funny enough, during the night, some winds kicked up and they blew over the polystyrene and, you know, polystyrene, it broke apart because, you know, you try and move that stuff and it starts to come apart in little pearls and whatnot. I think it was Dean Semler who was joking about how he went back to that spot years later and he could still see little bits of styrofoam being blown around the outback. There's a real defined line of darkness and Max goes beyond it and leaves our compound dwellers standing there at the edge of the camp just kind of staring out into nothingness. You know what? We haven't gone to this thing reminds Rick of another thing corner lately, so let's pop in there now, because I'm watching all of these people stand and just stare into the darkness, and it reminds me of one scene in particular from Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, specifically when Luke has his force vision of Han and Leia in trouble. He decides that he's going to fly to Bespin to save them. Now, obviously, Yoda... And Obi-Wan Kenobi's ghost, they're not happy with this, and so they're trying to talk him out of it. But eventually, he just says, you know what? I'm going to go. I'll come back. I'll complete my training another time. If you want someone to talk about this scene a lot better than I'm doing it, look up uh, Star Wars Minute, their coverage of Empire in Minute 85 is where they talk about this. Anyway, Luke hops in his egg swing, takes off, and we get this shot of Yoda, and he's sitting there on the ground, and the floodlights of the X-Wing kind of wash over him, and, and Obi-Wan's ghost pipes up and he says, that boy is our last hope. And of course, Yoda responds with, no, there is another. But in this movie, there is no other. Max doesn't have a secret sister somewhere that's going to get the compound dwellers their salvation. (laughs) He is literally their last hope because if he doesn't come back with a truck in the next couple of days, the Lord Humongous is going to slaughter all of them. Help me, Mad Max. You're my only hope. Yeah. I can't decide if they look hopeful or... 
or forlorn. It's probably a mixture of the two. They see their fate not too far in front of them. It's coming up fast, but there is still something that could change it. Max could make it back with the rig. Mm -hmm. And that's a big if. He has a lot of uh, challenges to face before that happens. And of course, they realize that. So I think they're forlorn with a little hint of hopefulness. Yeah, I feel like Arky Whitley, the look on her face is more hopeful. I think Big Rebecca is really nervous because just earlier that day she was all gung-ho to give up and she was persuaded to do otherwise by Max's conviction that he'd be able to do it. And if he doesn't deliver that kind of goes back on the faith that she showed in him. Am I saying that right? Big Uh Rebecca is gambling on Max to win because she was willing to do this course of action and she diverged from that course of action on his word. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that kind of makes his success directly linked to her credibility. You know what I mean? Am I coming across as a crazy person? Yes. Well, <laughs> I know what you mean. You are not coming across as a crazy person. Okay, good. That also made me think of Papagallo, who it, finishing up his speech earlier that day said that there is always a way, but first we have to protect the fuel. Mm-hmm. His credibil- credibility is also riding on Max because Max is the way that always shows itself. Yeah. He, Max is the answer to Papagallo's speech. So if Max doesn't come through and there is no way to come out of this alive, then Papagallo's credibility is lost. Yeah. Which his credibility, I think, is on thin ice anyways because of Rebecca's uprising. Uh, so many people were willing to discount what Papagallo was putting forth as the plan to stay the course. For him to remain a credible leader of these people, Max has to come through. And I know we're talking a lot about their credibility and their standing in amongst the compound dwellers. I said it earlier. I should reiterate it again. Their credibility is not going to mean much if they're all slaughtered. The Lord Humongous has given them a very brief rest from the violence. And if they shun him again or go against him again, which they are doing, Mm -hmm. he's going to come down on them harder and faster than they have in the days leading up to that. Yes. And they know it. Yes. (laughs) So just to reiterate the tension and the mood with the remaining dwellers watching Max walk off, there's wild dogs howling in the distance, Mm kind of off to the left. At this time, we're zoomed in to Rebecca, Arky, and the feral child. I love this because Rebecca and Arky both look off to the left where the howling is coming from with a look of concern. Feral child, not phased one bit. And we learn why in tomorrow's minute. I just love that the feral child is calm and collected and these dogs do not face him. Yeah, and I think the feral child keeps his eyes on Max the longest out of everyone. Yes. Like you said, we're going to see why come tomorrow. Tomorrow. Max has passed Star Trek into darkness, passed the moat, he's out into the wasteland, and he's coming up on the next obstacle. He's passing very close by a raider camp, and obviously he's not going to walk right through the middle of it, so he's giving it a wide berth. And this is where it's really dark. I have the ability with the editing program that I use to boost the gamma and so I can Mm. make everything look kind of funny, but at least it's visible. I'm jealous. What happens is that Max is walking and he's being very slow, very deliberate. He's making sure his jerry cans don't knock up against each other too loudly. And he takes a step and what should be hard ground is actually the edge of a ditch. And so his 
foot slips and then we get a shot which is really you don't get the full effect when it's in the dark but it's a shot of max kind of a three-quarter shot of his face and shoulders where he just drops out of frame like he falls into this (laughs) ditch real hard and it's so funny because it's it's a really quick little shot it's only like 10 frames and then he's gone but he uh slides down the edge of this ditch and the jerry cans are rattling around and making sound against the dirt as he hits the bottom of this embankment we cut right to the raider camp where Bearclaw mohawk stands up really suddenly and he takes off his mask and he's like oh there's a sound i'm gonna go check it out slow down a little because i got comments for the fall let's go back to the fall i love it (laughs) because it's like the mad max version of three stooges slapstick the sudden drop away but it's still very serious And you get a chuckle out of it. I got a chuckle out of it, and I couldn't even see it properly. Most of our listeners and fellow viewers won't be able to see it properly unless they're like you and manipulate it. It is much easier to see it in the Blu-ray version as opposed to the DVD or VHS version. Yes, yes. The copy that we have that we have uh, chunked up into minutes does tend to be dark. So when I saw that this minute was... Uh, at least like half of it is at night out in the dark with really no lights at all. I'm like, all right, I'm going to wait till I get home from work and watch the actual Blu-ray. Almost no difference whatsoever. This scene is just dark. It's just blackness. I will say this scene is definitely meant to be very serious and very tense very dramatic. Yes, and and it's drawn out for the remainder of this minute and all of tomorrow's minute and into Wednesday, I believe. This whole situation of him falling into the ditch is really a make-or-break moment, but just that tiniest sliver, that split second of him falling out of frame, it is kind of funny. Yeah, it's pretty great. (laughs) I want to take this opportunity to bring up a subject that was mentioned on our Facebook group, Beyond Microphone. Yep, that's facebook.com slash groups slash MMM Beyond Microphone. The URL is a little cumbersome. This is from a longtime listener, friend of the show, has been a guest on the show, Brad Mull. This was a comment from um, earlier in the season we were, when we brought up the idea that Max is a Mary Sue, meaning a character who does everything well. Not that it doesn't make any mistakes, I don't think, but any any skill that they attempt, they do it well. Brad brought up the point. I'm going to read verbatim what he said. He said, on the Mary Sue issue, remember, if this is a campfire theory and Max's antics are being told by another, then he is going to come off more of a hero. I really like the point that he made that this story is being told by the feral child. It sounded like the feral child is the one that dubbed him the road warrior. Yeah. So, of course, he's going to tell this idealized version of the story. You know, he wants to remain accurate, but he's also theoretically sitting around a campfire telling stories. Mm -hmm. You want them to be uplifting. You want the hero to be heroic. I find it amusing that the feral child in telling this story included this moment where Max falls down flat on his butt. There is a very specific reason why he would include this detail. And unfortunately, that detail is contained in tomorrow's minute. And I don't want to jump ahead. So we'll get to talk about it again tomorrow. Exactly. As far as Max being portrayed as an idealized version of himself in a story that someone else is telling yes you want your character to be admirable and capable but something like this where he 
falls into a ditch because it's pitch black outside and he's trying to be sneaky, it's incredibly humanizing. It reminds you that Max was still just a man. It's not like he used his magical mind powers to float effortlessly over the wasteland to deliver them. Reminds me, I was listening to the podcast today, uh, Lore, which is a phenomenal podcast about folklore. He tells it in a very storyteller style. Uh, Honestly, I can't remember what he was talking about today. But one point that he made stuck with me is that when people are telling stories about specifically about creatures, they describe the creature realistic enough to be believable, Mm -hmm. but also fantastic enough to be exciting. Okay. You don't want to create a creature in story that is so outlandish that you can't picture that creature actually existing in the same world that you live in. There needs to be something realistic about that creature. So same thing applies to Max. There has to be something realistic about him to connect him to the real world. At the same time, things fantastic about him to make him worth telling a story about. That makes sense, because when you think about a lot of fantastic beasts... And where you where find them. to find them. Uh, <laughs> primarily, I think, of dragons. And dragons have the wings of a bat and the body of a serpent and the claws and teeth of a lion. Mm-hmm. You know, you draw inspiration and sources from animals that people are very familiar with. You think of... In Greek tradition, the minotaur, half man, half bull. Like, everybody knows what a bull looks like. Everybody knows what a man looks like. And so it's really easy to marry those things together. Sometimes the more patched together the creature is, like the chimera, part lion, part goat, with a serpent for the tail, like, Mm -hmm. the more horrifying it can get because of the Cronenbergian alteration of the natural form. And as far as describing a hero for the tale, you kind of want to go the opposite direction and not be quite so horrifying in your construction of that hero, but still give them those human qualities that you were talking about. It's a very good point. This scene where he falls down into a ditch, and then in the previous scene when he was walking over the bridge of Rex, he slipped a little bit Mm -hmm. because it was treacherous. And it was very realistic. And honestly, that slip, it was probably Mel Gibson genuinely slipping. Because none of those surfaces were level. No. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I really like this scene. Like you mentioned before, and I pushed you backwards, the fall, which, by the way, just a quick side note, is impressively quiet. Like, <laughs> if I had fallen down like that, I would have cried out. Yes, I wouldn't you have would've. been able to help it. And I think most people would. So the fact that he doesn't cry out and make a commotion involuntarily is impressive. The only noises that we really hear are the jerry cans banging around. Yeah. But that's enough to catch the attention of the nearby marauders. The main marauder in this camp is Bearclaw Mohawk, who I mentioned earlier. Yes. And he seems to jump to his feet at the sound of those jerry cans falling. And not only does he jump to his feet and get into the center of the frame, but we also get a nice smashing of music. The score comes in nice and loud to really hammer home the fact that, oh no, Max is in trouble. <laughs> yes. This is a bad thing that Bearclaw Mohawk hurt him because Bearclaw Mohawk is a bad dude. And we don't really know what he's capable of yet because we haven't seen him in action beyond no, carrying he Wes away. He doesn't really away. get to shine until the end of the movie. I think so. Yeah, he stands up and he pulls off his mask and he's got the gray mohawk going down the top of his head. I love that gray mohawk. I love that there is a lot of hair dye going on in the Marauders in general, especially the mohawk. 
Stalkers. Yeah. There's a couple different colors. His is unique that I have seen. It's dyed this beautiful, like, silver gray. Mm. It's very striking. And he has striking features. He has a nicely chiseled face that is very nicely highlighted in this minute and in tomorrow's minute. Yeah, it's one of the very few things you can see where it is so dark. One kind of cool detail about this camp is just how many different marauders are camping together. You see a couple of vehicles from the bad cop faction. You see a bunch of mohawkers hanging around. There are some of the more um, heavily covered up dudes, if I recall right. And is that the name of their faction? No, I think the it's heavily the heavily smegma- covered up dudes? No, I think it's the Smegma Crazies, but they've got a weird name. <laughs> but I like that... It's another instance of how the Lord Humongous has been able to take all of these disparate groups out of the wasteland and into the Horde. That he is a unifier as much as he is a brutalizer and barbarian. Yeah, I think that is to his credit. Mm -hmm. And it is a power that could be used for good and is instead used for evil. Bearclaw Mohawk, getting back to the minute proper, has taken off his mask probably to help improve his visibility in the low light and proceeds to leave the fire behind to start walking towards the sound that he heard. Yeah, right off the bat, I don't like his chances of actually finding somebody in the darkness because he's going from the firelight where his eyes are adjusted to that specific awkward light level Mm -hmm. and walking out into the pitch black. Right, so his eyes aren't adjusted to the darkness. We, We love camping. What happens when you're camping at night, you've got a campfire, you've got this ring of light, and at the edge of that ring of light is a wall of blackness. Nothing exists beyond that wall. Right. You have to get up and leave the fire for an extended amount of time before your eyes adjust to that darkness. You have to get fully outside that ring before your eyes start making any progress. And I think that reason alone is kind of what saves Max. Now, yes, there is some intervention that we're going to talk about tomorrow, but Bearclaw Mohawk is coming from the relatively bright fire that everyone is gathered around. He's walking mm-hmm. out into the darkness and he's trying to look. But he can't see anything. Exactly. You know, maybe that's why he takes his time. Mm-hmm. He's probably he's letting, letting his eyes adjust. Right. I appreciate in this movie that despite the music that we got when we first saw Bearclaw Mohawk, by the time he gets to the point where he's walking away from the camp, that music is gone and we're back to just listening to the ambient noise because the scene is all about is Mac quiet enough to avoid detection. Bearclaw Mohawk's footsteps are probably amplified by the exclusion of other noise. Yeah, it's all relative. Yeah. Now, there is a little bit of noise before he gets close to the ditch because Max is down at the bottom and he looks up to Dog and he whispers, come on, Dog. And I think it's the only instance in this movie where Max refers to Dog by name. Yeah, I really like that confirmation. I can't remember when we started calling dog dog. I can't remember exactly why we started using that as his name. It's because in the cast list, he's called he's dog. called dog. Okay, because of this one instance where Max calls him by name and says dog. He also does a little shushing to dog, which is incredibly human. He calls for dog. Dog scrambles over the edge of the gully and goes down in. And he must have like bumped into something or let out a little bit of a whimper because mm-hmm. Max shushes him. Yes. Like you would another person. Yes. Who's making too much noise. Which is fantastic because earlier in the movie, Max also did things, interactions with Dog that were very human-like. Glances passing between them and understanding. 
So they really do have that kind of relationship. It's fantastic. We kind of get to the end of the minute at this point. Max is at the bottom of the gully. He has pulled a very shiny knife from his boot, and he is lying in wait for anyone that may hop down into the gully with him. Yeah, that shiny knife concerns me because it's shiny, because it's so easy to catch the light and give himself away. Yeah, if there is any sort of moon or starlight Mm -hmm. and he holds it wrong. Which... We can see some light reflecting off of it coming towards us. Right. Well, that's obviously because right can't film in complete darkness. Oh, I don't know. It's been it's been pretty dark. Yeah. I actually wrote it down in my notes that this series of scenes in such darkness is unique. Most movies, when they are portraying darkness, not usually that dark. Yeah, they'll pull out the blue lights. And yes, kinda... where like you get the sense that it's dark, like you know it's supposed to be dark, but it's not dark because you can't see and you can't show a movie that way. But George Miller can. He yeah. just went for it. It's dark and you can barely see anything. <laughs> and he just went for it. Yes, he did. As for tomorrow's minute, we are going to stay in that ditch for another day. Max is going to get some surprise help from nowhere that he planned on getting help from. And uh, we're going to see if Bearclaw Mohawk sticks around or gives up. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for minute 41 of the road warrior see you tomorrow